This month on the Open Apple Podcast, there's some people who have bought my boards and are searching around the world, literally around the world, and finding date code correct components that would have been the same year manufacturer components that were on the original Apple one. It's really wild. All that and more. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. This is show number 29 for July 2013. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Kansas Fest is just around the corner, but in the meantime, we're here to entertain you with more Apple II news, views, and pretty much anything else we can think of. I am Mike McGinnis, and I'm here with my co-host, as I am every month, Ken Gagney. How are you, sir? I'm fine, and I recommend that anybody who's going to Kansas Fest download this episode as well as our exhaustive back catalog of episodes and listen to all of them to get you into the mood for the world's premier Apple II convention. That's right. You need to sit in your living room and listen to them one at a time. Uh, don't get up. Don't don't get food. Don't go to the bathroom. Just uh, all, what are we at, like 45 or 50 hours of programming? <laughs> well, you know, we have at least one listener who... I think this is one of the only podcasts he listens to. He's very dedicated to the audio arts and wants to consume it in just the right context. So when he's listening to our podcast, this is actually the only thing he's doing. Wow. He doesn't, he's not doing the dishes. He's not cooking. He's not driving to work. He's not going for a jog. He sits back and listens to our show, which in my opinion is the way it should be consumed because otherwise you're just missing out on all the nuances that really put our podcast above and beyond anything else you can find on the internet. It's true. Our, the, the quality of the programming that you find here is head and shoulders above everything else out there. Everything, yes. Or at least that's what I like to tell people. Uh, we do have people who don't listen to podcasts regularly, but what? then when they're driving across Kansas or coming down from Chicago to Kansas Fest, they have nothing else to do, so they do load up on Open Apple and they consume multiple hours of shows. A couple of years ago, I drove to Denver from Boston with Juice GS associate editor Andy Malloy, and we listened to about seven episodes of Open Apple, not because... I hadn't already heard them, and not because I love the sound of my own voice, but because <laughs> he had fallen a little bit behind, and I thought that would be a good opportunity to force him to catch up. And how did we sound, Ken? Delightful. Of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks primarily to the voice masking that we do. Yeah, without the voice masking, I actually sound like Gilbert Gottfried, and people are really surprised to find that out when they show up at Kansas Fest, but Open Apple, yeah, I can sound however I want. True. Yep. Yeah. So how are you this month, Mike? Doing well, Ken, and you? Good. As you may recall, our last episode that we recorded with Lon was the night before the movers came and took all my furniture. Yes. Uh, they did give it back to me in a new home, which I, I'm i a terrible unpacker. I'm looking at a room of about a dozen boxes right now that, that haven't changed in the month that I've been here. Uh, but I do love the new location. The commute to work has gone from a 90-minute train ride to a 30-minute bicycle ride, and I love starting my day on the bicycle. It is just a fantastic start to my day. It sounds like a definite step up in your situation, so uh, we're all happy for you. Thank you. Yeah, so is my chiropractor. He, I saw him yesterday, and he said, wow, your back is much better than the last time I saw you. Are you doing something differently? I'm like, yeah, I'm bicycling like a dozen miles every day, and you know, a dozen by itself may not be much, but you know, five times a week, it's, it really adds up. I imagine it has some really great health benefits. 
Yeah, and also I have not put any gasoline in my car in the last three and a half weeks. Yeah, but you drive a Prius. It's not like you fill that thing <laughs> regularly anyway. I used to. I used to fill it up maybe once every 10 days or so. Wow, but that's still, a lot of driving. Is, yeah, this, I... You know, I met somebody recently who has the same year car I do, but she has 20% of the miles I do. I have 125,000 miles, and she has 25,000 miles. Wow. And we both bought our Priuses six years ago. Well, I'm glad things are working out in your new place. Yeah, me too. I have not changed my office at MIT, which is where my Apple II is, so that has a, been a constant, and I still have access to all my retro computing stuff there. And what about you? You still have your exhaustive Apple II collection? I'm slowly whittling away at it, but uh, I do. Yeah, I, I think that I've, I've reached the con- I've reached the conclusion that it's probably better to have maybe one or two or three or four um, items that are in really great shape and that I care about um, and put a lot of effort into than a storage unit full of twenty or fifty or a hundred of these things. So um, I'm slowly reducing my collection. Um, and that's been going okay. Yeah, I remember reading on your blog about how the visit to Pinball Wizard versus Fun Spot, both in New Hampshire, helped you realize the uh, end result that the two different approaches to collecting can have. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that, that that turned out to be sort of the spark that got me thinking about this. And this being me, it takes me forever to, to go from thought to action. Um, but yeah, it's I've finally been taking some steps, and it's been beneficial. Another nice thing about it is that other people out there who love and, and want to play with these vintage computers have a way to get them from me. So by what criteria are you deciding what to keep and what to not keep? Uh, well, I kind of look at the units one at a time and, and try to make the decision based on, okay, do I have a, a better version of this? And if, and, it, and if I do, or do I have one that's more important to me sen- from a sentimental um, standpoint, or is it? Uh, uh, I have another one that's say like a one of a clack. I have the Beagle, that that Beagle Brothers 2GS that Randy Brent gave me a while back. That's not going anywhere, but it may take the place on my shelf of a standard ROM 3 2GS. But I assume that you're swapping in and out parts and pieces that you want to keep. Sometimes, yep. I have a I have a very early. Serial number Apple IIe uh, that I'm not going to swap pieces in and out of, but then I have another IIe that was, you know, that's my IIe from from childhood that I have no problem putting chips and boards and things like that in as I as I need them, and so I have those two Apple IIe's, and I don't need the stack of fifteen that's sitting over there in the corner. Do you have a goal for a number of computers that you'll ultimately have? I'd like to get the whole thing down to less than ten total uh, units, and that's down from what? 50 or so. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad those other 40 are finding good homes. Yeah, me too. This is Lane Roth of Ideas from the Deep. You're listening to Open Apple. Given the all the Apple One activity that we've been seeing in the news lately uh, with the, the crazy auctions, and now it looks like there's going to be uh, – it looks like there was a gathering of – uh, Silicon Valley luminaries uh, that all got together with their Apple Ones, um, and there's been some yeah, the Apple Twos are going up in price. I thought we'd bring on uh, a guest this month that has a lot more experience uh, and, and deep knowledge about these early a- Apple machines. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Will Eagle is here with us today. Hi, everybody. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. And I've 
previously met you at VCF. That was what three years ago now, two years ago. Um, that one, I don't know, a couple years ago. Yeah, uh, you're a regular at the New Jersey show, aren't you? Well, I've been to two of them. I've been to the one that they had in Burlington, Mass, and this year I went down to Atlanta to that one. Oh, the VCF Southeast. Yeah. And you were at the Burlington one way back in like 2004 or so? Yeah, it was something like that. I wasn't that much into vintage computers back then, but uh, it was kind of on the way home from work. <laughs> so I, and they had like Friday afternoon, they had something going on. You know, they started it. So I stopped in oh, for that's... briefly. Yeah. Were you exhibiting? No, no, no. I just stopped okay. in and said hello and looked around. Okay. Because I went to that one with uh, Jerry Ellsworth and Ryan Suinaga and Andy Malloy and Kelvin Sherlock. And I, I would hope that I would remember if I'd met you there as well. No, I, I doubt if you would have remembered me because I was, that was kind of before I did anything. Before you were famous. <laughs> <laughs> and now you are most famous for, if I recall, the Replica One, which is your Apple One replica. When did you start selling that? Um, actually, before I did that, I did an Apple II Rev Zero. Oh, wow. The Apple II came before the Apple One. In my case, it did. <laughs> Um, and I did that around 2007 or something like that. And I think I did the Apple one just a few years ago in 2009 and 10. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm sorry. When I said replica one, that's not the correct name. That's Vince Breel's product. Yours is the Mimeo. I call it the Mimeo. Uh, there's a few different people that have done, um, replica Apple one. So I had to give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, if it's just a reproduction Apple One, it's hard to tell whose is whose. So, so what does distinguish yours from other Apple One clones? Well, I mean, Vince uses uh, Vince's approach is uh, actually I actually met him at that uh, Burlington VCF briefly. I'm sure he wouldn't have remembered me because I just stopped by and said hello, and I says, "Wow, that's really wild what you've done there." But he uses some modern components to kind of cut down on uh, cost and component sourcing issues. And mine is um, pretty much a uh, duplicate of the original, um, down to the trace layout, uh, the silk screen, everything. I, the components on mine are the exact same components um, as are used on the original. As a matter of fact, there's some people that bought my boards and are searching around the world, literally around the world, and finding date code correct components that would have been the same, you know, com- year manufacturer components that were on the original Apple one. It's really wild. So, and, and there's another one called the Uptronics that um, came out before mine, and it, it's similar. Um, I think I, I laid my traces exactly the same way as the original. The Uptronics has the same basic layout. I don't think it's as detailed a reproduction. And there's another guy in Hong Kong that's done one too. So it's given the the prices that these auctions are going at these days, would it would it be theoretically possible to take one of your uh, Mimeos and pull off a a, a forgery, a faker, a fake Apple One as as the real thing. Um, I, I think I mentioned the Optronics. Somebody actually tried to pass an Optronics off as a, a real one a few years ago. 
as far as I know, nobody's tried to pass off one of my Mimeos. If you know the boards really well, you can tell the difference. But um, if you're not, like, knowledgeable or not up to, not, I guess, an expert, um, you could be fooled, I'm sure. Now, so, yeah. these uh, these uh, auctions have been going on. I, I've seen your name in a few of the the articles that have been talking about yeah. them. They, they seem to be coming to you as that expert. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, that's kind of a funny story. I I, I think when I, I was working with a few other guys in the reproduction, you know, digging up original information on original boards, and we basically cataloged um, a bunch of original boards. And I says, well, let me put up a website documenting what I found. And so I put up this website I call the Apple One Registry. And that's kind of been a, a reference people have used for uh, original Apple One information. And uh, people have noticed that, and now they start emailing me and asking me questions. It kind of cascaded from that uh, registry thing. Plus, I think, Ken, uh, I, d I don't know if you actually hooked me up with Greg at, at Computer World, but, uh, you know, there's been a few different connections going on. In November 2010, when I was working at Computer World, reporter Greg Kaiser did a story about the Apple One going on sale at Christie's. And then when it actually did go on sale, he didn't have the time to go back and report about how much it went for. So I wrote that story, tapped my Apple One resources, which included you and Eric Rucker. And once Greg Kaiser had future opportunities to write about the Apple One, he tapped me for some of the resources I used for my story. And now you're a regular go-to guy at Computer World, even though I'm not even there anymore. Now, how has it been trying to uh, hunt down information about these these Apple ones for your registry and, and talking to people? Well, it, it's 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 interesting. Um, some actually, once I put the registry up, some people, original Apple One owners, would send me emails saying, "Oh, I've got one too, and it's not in your registry." And that's been going on for a couple since I put up the registry. And as a matter of fact, for some reason, there's been a big influx of new information over the past uh, few weeks. Um, where I've got like five or six new Apple ones identified that aren't in the registry. It's funny how these these high priced auctions sort of bring that stuff out of the woodwork that way. Yeah, and you know, there's been a several of those auctions, and I was thinking. You know, okay, this is old news now. Apple ones are going for high price. You know, how come they're still, you know, making news like it, like it, uh, you know, at one point, you know, it was big news and now, now it seems like it's just repetitive news, but it's, it still seems to attract attention. Yeah, it's that, uh, the Apple, uh, zeitgeist thing, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I've, I've had, uh, you know, Wendell Sanders been huge in the Apple One community. Um, it, you know, he's known kind of in the history books as the uh, engineer behind the Apple Three, but he's really been, um, in terms of the Apple One community, the guys working on reproductions and original systems, he, he's been uh, really involved Um and actually, when I designed my reproduction, he helped me out with a few things, a few questions I couldn't answer on my own. So it's been interesting. So so what motivates someone to decide, hey, I want to make an Apple One replica? Well, 
the, the actually I got to go back to the Apple II Rev Zero I did first because that that's the first one I did. Okay. And and the reason why I did that is I had an Apple II back in I bought one in uh, um, early 1978. It was like serial number 2600 or something like that. And over the years, I'd lent it to my mother, who used it in an accounting business. And when she gave it back, uh, it had a f- few repairs. It didn't have the original motherboard. And I was looking at the prices of original mo- mother- Rev Zero motherboards, and I said, "Well, for that, I can build one." So mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I ended up uh, building a, a Rev Zero motherboard to kind of put my Apple II kind of back the way it was. So when you say you built the Rev Zero Apple II motherboard, is that you you fabricated? That was your first replica. Yeah, I, I basically replicated the uh, printed circuit board layout. You know, oh wow! As close as I could make it, and it, you know, basically I found some old integer ROM chips, plugged it in, and it, it basically is. Essentially, a, a clone of a Apple II Rev Zero motherboard. Wow, sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is the other strange. Thing. It is a lot of work, and uh, I would get up in the morning, you know, and before work, and and spend spend an hour or so working on it, and over a period of uh, four or five months, you know, put in. Uh, you know, maybe ten hours a week on it, and uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a ton of work. What led you to duplicate these computers as opposed to some PDPs or Commodores or any other of the retro computers out there? Okay, so that the Apple II, obviously, because um, you know I had one. Then I, the next one I did was the Mimeo, the, the Apple One clone. And I did that one because um, there was an Optronics clone out there, and then there was Vince Briel's, which is isn't really a clone. It's more of a, I guess you'd call it a workalike. I mean, it's it's functionally pretty close, but it's it's not the same thing as having an original board. And um, Steve Gabney, who'd done the Optronics, kind of what he was hard to reach by email and stuff, and I knew I'd done the the rev zero and um so i knew i could do it and so i started searching around well i thought i could do it but i the first thing i did was can i find all the old components to build one because if you can't find the components you know there's no point in building a printed circuit board but i figured out i could find the components um and uh, i had a few people asking me about it and i, I decided to give it a whirl mainly because i I answer emails uh, most of the time, and Steve Gabney really didn't very often. So I figured, well, maybe there's a place for somebody that makes a clone and, and will answer emails. <laughs> <laughs> That's your niche market then. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I used to have a joke that the, uh, the, the to- total available market was 20 people. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume you've expanded your market beyond that original 20. Well, the the Apple II Rev Zero, I sold sixteen PCBs. So for that one, I'm not that far off. But <laughs> I'll probably do another uh, batch of those because it's been a while since I had those, and I I get emails every month, mm. people asking about those. 
Now, how how come when people are looking for an Apple One clone, it seems to me like Vince Briel's product has more market awareness than yours? Do you feel that's an accurate assessment? Um, I, well, Vince has hit a dip, much different price point. I mean, his his system's under. I think it's under two hundred bucks or around two hundred bucks or something like that. And to build a clone, it costs just in parts to build the power supply on a clone Apple One is like a hundred bucks. That's just the cost. And if you want to make any money, you got to charge more than that. So to to build a clone Apple One, you're talking about a thousand bucks, which is a much different. Uh, much different price point and takes a much more uh, fanatical person. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Huh. Now, I assume that the Apple One or the Apple II were not your first computers. You probably gotten to enjoy some other models along the way in your career? Um, The Apple II was my first computer. Oh, wow. In 78, there weren't a lot of options. I mean, when I went to, there was a bite. I lived in Florida at the time. And there was a bite shop... Um, in Florida, they sold uh, M-size, SAL-20s, and Apple IIs. I think, I think they probably had some other systems, you know, S-100 systems in there. And, uh, you know, it was really a decision between an S-100 system like a, a SAL-20 and an Apple II back then. But the SAL-20 to get color in it, to, to equip it to similar to the Apple II is about five or $600 more. Sounds like an easy decision. Yeah. Well, it was kind of hard, though, because it was um, that S100 bus was the standard bus. Mm-hmm. And when you're going with this Apple II, you know, there wasn't many people making peripheral cards or any for an Apple II. So you're kind of taking a chance. I guess that makes sense. You've obviously got the, the Apple One, the Apple Two clones, but you cloned another computer as well, and I believe that you showed that off at VCF Southeast. Is that right? Right. So this is actually, I was glad <laughs> glad you brought that up because <laughs> I've got a passionate. Uh, my passion right now is for this uh, computer called the Selby, mm-hmm. um, and this thing is it was in my mind the uh, first person first company formed to sell computers to people in uh, April 74 they were advertising in ham magazines I, be- I believe it was radio electronics they had a small ad um, and if you look back in the history and the um, you know kind of the, the the newsletters for the amateur computer users back then the Selby was kind of the the High end, the the computer, the the best system out there for a while, and it was kind of been forgotten. How is it cloning that versus, say, cloning the Apple One or the Apple Two? Well, the Selby, it's a lot. I think it was a lot harder. Um, the Selby was six boards, like an Apple One or an Apple Two motherboards, one board. So I had to do six boards. Um, the layout of the Apple One and the Apple Two, the actual ap- actual Apple Two layout was done uh, digitally, and the Apple One layout was done by this guy that did a bunch of uh, Atari um, motherboards for the Atari um, console games. Okay. So he was really really good. 
but the guys that did the Selby, the PCB layout, they did it on their own. So it's a lot quirkier, less consistent. So anyway, I mean, I mean, these guys that built up the Selby, um, they, uh, they had a basically, um, you know, they were killed by the Altair essentially because they couldn't compete on price. And that the 8008 was, uh, incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've done some benchmarks. Um, Egan Ford has done some pie, ben- he's been pi- benchmarking 8 bit micros mm-hmm. and like the, uh, to run a pie generation program. And the 8008 is like, you know, 10 times slower than a 6502. It's, it's running about 30,000 instructions per second. That's a significant difference. Oh yeah. It, it's, and they had a basic on the Selby, you know, that they had a floating point basic, which Apple didn't come out with until they, uh, you know, hooked up with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, you're running that basic. I actually don't have the full system going yet that I can run basic on it. Um, but it's incredibly slow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's uh, getting back to the Apple one here for, for just a minute. Um, so if I wanted to buy a board from you to, to build my own Mimeo one, do you have kits available right now? And if so, how much would that cost me? Well, so right now I, I stopped selling full kits myself it just was a time sink and i wasn't you know there's no money in this really to speak of so i was just like spending all my time you know sorting through parts and putting together kits so i'll sell mother a bare motherboard um there's a company up in pennsylvania called unicorn electronics and i sent them the bill bill of materials and they can sell you the parts kits to build it so between me and Unicorn, you can get a kit of parts and a, a PCB and build one up. Um, my my board is 150 bucks, and I believe at Unicorn, I haven't checked uh, recently, but I believe his parts kits are 666 bucks. <laughs> what a convenient price point! Just yeah. like the good old days. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I first sold kit, I did sell kits for a while, and when I did that, I was selling them for 666 bucks too, but. Um, like I said, there wasn't a lot of money in it. It was a time sink, like unbelievable. Sure. So, and and you've done what two or three runs now of these boards? Um, four, okay. five. I, I've sold just short of a hundred boards. Oh, okay. Now, are are you are you doing revisions with each run of boards as you find you know a detail here or there that might be off that you want to correct, or are these all the same going back to the first run? Uh, I've done a few minor revisions yes um okay. typically i mean it, it's funny i you know the, the the there isn't a lot of difference if you saw one of my original boards and my current boards and, and you didn't uh know the difference they'd look identical but there's been a few minor tweaks as i've discovered discrepancies okay. Okay, so for for around seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred dollars, I can have my own working Apple One replica or a, a Mimeo One. Right. It's interesting then because I'm looking at this this eBay auction, and I've seen this a few times um, online. They'll have one of yours or one of these. I guess there's a Newton One, which is a, a different right. Um, right. selling. You know, starting bids twelve hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. That's crazy, but. I, how do you feel about that? Well, those are all built up, right? 
and working? Uh, well, the one that I'm looking at right now is actually just the board and the the, the parts and, and the of, parts and the parts, and then he will negotiate with you for an extra cost if you want him to assemble it for you. Yeah. Okay. That that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that no, guy. but uh, he's you know he's got the parts kit. I don't know where he, if he got his own parts or he got them from Unicorn. He has a cassette interface, which is additional money. Mm-hmm. I do sell cassette interface kits. They're seventy five bucks. So. Um, and he has, uh, key, he has a few other things. Um, I don't know if, you know, you can basically get a board for me, a parts kit from Unicorn, probably get most of what you need for about a thousand bucks. So I don't, I don't know okay, so where that, that 1200 this... starting price is coming from. Okay. Probably for his, his time to, to put it all together for you or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mike, this is a great hobby that you have, but I assume you've also made a career out of these skills you've developed. Well, yeah, that's the the funny thing. When I um got into the Apple II in uh, like early '78, I I was actually majoring in college in mechanical engineering, and I switched to software engineering after getting the Apple II. And uh, within a year after that, I got a job at a company that was making mini computers. And I've been in high tech since then. Um, and, but the interesting thing is when I got into the mini computers, I kind of forgot about the micros. And uh, so I kind of, when I pulled my Apple II stuff out of the attic, it was kind of in a time warp of the late 70s. So I know when you guys are always talking about these games that came out in the 80s and stuff like that, I'm kind of unaware of them to some extent. <laughs> There's just this big hole missing in your Apple II history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when did when did you pull it out of the closet or out of the attic? Oh, it was probably. Well, that's another story. I was um, into photography for a while, and I wanted to um, build my own shutter tester because I was into still film cameras that had mechanical shutters. And uh, actually, I figured I got this Apple II. I can probably build it out of that. So I brought it down out of the attic to build the shutter tester. It turns out it didn't work well, so I got another one off eBay for forty-five bucks. That was a two plus, but <laughs> yeah, anything the Apple II does can probably be done more easily and more cheaply with something else, but not nearly for as much fun. But, well, not. I mean, I so I built the shutter tester on that, and it, it worked out pretty well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, what's replaced those micros not or the microcomputers of the 70s, 80s is these microcontrollers, these, um, you know, the, um, the, um, Atmel's, um, God, losing my mind here. The, uh, Arduinos and those sort of things are kind yeah. of replacing what, uh, we used to do with micros back then. Yeah, and the Apple Pie and mobile platforms. Exactly, too. Ras- Raspberry Pi, whatever, you know. People are doing that kind of stuff, which used to be done in uh, microcomputers. Yeah, you mentioned Egan Ford was working on a, a Pi generator. I assume you're referring to Raspberry Pi and not some sort of a... No, some, I mean uh, mathematical Pi. P- oh, okay. Yeah. There, there are so many applications for the word Pi in today's hobbyist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he's actually gone and uh, done a bunch of benchmarks on different 8-bit micros. 8-bit micros and see which, which one can generate pi to a 1,000 digits fastest. Oh, okay. That kind of pi. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm yeah. very glad that you took your Apple II out of the closet and that even if it 
uh, presented you with some difficulties in getting it to do what you want. I'm glad you stuck around. Yeah, it's been fun. It's really been fun. Great people. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So we like to keep track of former guests uh, that have appeared on the Open Apple podcast. And recently it was announced that Melissa Barron, who uh, appeared on, I think, episode show number nine. Does that sound right, Ken? Um, oh, uh, we've had. I know she's been on the show. I think it was. November of our first year, so that would probably be around number nine, yeah. <laughs> she has been busy with her glitch art, uh, which she's demonstrated uh, at Kansas Fest's past, and it's it's she's announced that her art will be exhibited um, as part of the glitch momentums at the Furtherfield Gallery in London. The exhibit runs from June 8th uh, through uh, July 28th of this year. Oh, that girl does get around her art. I mean, we've we, we've talked about her exhibiting, you know, internationally, nationally, and at Kansas Fest, and it's just amazing how much attention what we would think would just be uh, an amazingly cool yet quirky thing in our own community is getting international attention. Yeah, it's it's very nice to see. Yeah, I, I would have thought the market for that would have been 20 units like my Rev Zero, but apparently it's not. <laughs> I was talking to her at uh, Kansas Fest, I think, last year, and she was saying that uh, she gets a lot of requests for the uh, the glitch art weavings that she's done. Um, uh, I guess those are very popular, but she doesn't. The, I, she builds them not to last. They're designed to fall apart after a little while, so she doesn't feel good about selling them. Um mm. So, but isn't planned obsolescence a integral quality of any consumer product? You would think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the uh, ex- the exhibit runs, as I said, from June eighth through July twenty eighth of this year. If you're in England in that area, maybe stop by, and and if you're listening to the show, hey, let us know what it was like. Uh, the exhibit was is curated by Rosa Minkum and Furtherfield. And it looks like it's open Friday through Sunday uh, from 11 to 5 p.m. And we'll have a, a link in the show notes to all the details. For once, we're actually talking about an event before it happens. I know, crazy. Well, by the time this this we edit and put everything online, you know, it could be August. It could be several months before it's. Now, I'm pretty sure our listeners will be hearing this sometime in the month of July. I would hope so. Yes. Excellent. Well, congratulations, Melissa. Yeah, nice to see. I hope she doesn't become too popular for Kansas Fest. Is she on the is she on the list to attend this year? I don't know. I haven't looked at the list. Let me pull up that list. Let's see. Uh, uh that might be a whole nother Yeah, she's coming this year. Okay. Excellent. So she'll have some of her work with her, I bet. Cool. Alrighty. What's next on our spreadsheet? Speaking of conventions, we have three coming up. Uh Kansas Fest, which I just mentioned is being held July 23rd to the 28th, opening with a keynote speech by Randy Wigginton. And it is going to be a fantastic week. It's also the 30th anniversary of the movie War Games, so there's been some discussion about having a personal screen of that right at the Rockhurst campus. I need to figure out where the JuiceGS staff photo is going to take place this year, because we try to have it in someplace quirky on campus every year. And We've been having this event at Rockhurst since 2005, so I'm wondering if the campus is starting to run out of quirks for us to exploit. However, one person I do not see on the list for this year's uh, Kansas Fest, and there are a ton, by the way. There are like 
uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, at least, at least ten people, eleven, who have never been to Kansas Fest before. So it's going to be a huge freshman class. However, I still don't see Mr. Mike Willegal coming to Kansas Fest. Uh oh. <laughs> What's up with that, sir? I, I'm got about time for about one trip a year. And this year I went down to uh, VCS Southeast. I see. So uh, David Grealish sniped us. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe in future years you'll make Kansas Fest that one trip? Yeah, I'd like to do that. I, I do have family in the Denver area. So, I mean, getting out that at general neck of the woods is not out of the question. Excellent. I mean, these are your people, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can do the Ken Gagney thing and come out to visit friends and family and then hop in my car and we'll drive out to Kansas City. It's been done. Like I said, it's it's not out of the question. I just need to, uh, it needs to line up with some family activities, I think, in Denver. <laughs> cool. Well, Denver is a lovely part of the country, so yep, I, I would is. definitely call that worth a trip. While we have Kansas Fest going on, there will be a bunch of Australians having their own get-together. A couple of years ago, they did Mount Kira Fest, and this year they're doing Oz K Fest. I don't know that they uh, filed the proper paperwork to get the rights to the Kansas Fest name, but, and I'm sure nobody really cares. But you know what? Any Gathering Apple II users is a great event and worthy of attention, so let's give it up for Oz K Fest at... Brisbane, Australia, July 27th to 28th. We've been mentioning this event on the show a couple of times, and it still hasn't happened yet, but Andrew Rowan is making a final push for registration and sessions. He has posted to A2 Central and the KFS list and CSA2 all the cool things that are going to be happening there. There will definitely be some new hardware being demonstrated. And I remember at Mount CuraFest, it was really impressive. All these Apple II users, who we don't often see at Kansas Fest because it's so such an inaccessible geographic location, to those in Australia, came out of the woodwork with these amazing projects that we had never really heard of, and it demonstrated to me that even in our uh, internet-connected global community, there are still these geographic divides where we don't always know what the other people are doing. So to have an event like Oz K-Fest that puts those projects and those people in the spotlight is very necessary and very appreciated, so I'm glad to see Andrew coordinating that. Anybody here going? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a <laughs> bit of a plane flight for me, and I think you guys too. But even if you're not going, if you're going to Can to Kansas Fest, uh, I believe they're planning to have a video uh, link up. Yes, and I'm pretty sure the setup to do that will be better than when we had it set up with Mount Kira Fest. I remember Mount Kira Fest occurred while Kansas Fest was being held in the. Rockhurst University Residence Hall, known as Xavier Loyola, and that separated us from the room in which we actually gave the presentations, which is known colloquially as the Party Barn, and that venue has terrible Wi-Fi. Since then, we've rather consistently gotten access to Corcoran Hall for our stay and for our presentations, and they have much better internet access there. So last year, we even did a hookup with our friends in Japan. And I suspect that this year we'll have no difficulty coordinating a link up with our friends in Australia. Uh, slightly off topic, do you know if they have, uh, if if Rockhurst has gotten access to to the Google Fiber thing that's going on in Kansas City? Because that that would certainly help with the bandwidth. You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I assume that 
the Kansas Fest committee uh, would know for sure, and I'm no longer on that committee. However, I would not consider it inappropriate for me to drop a quick line to my friends at Rockhurst and just ask them, hey, you know, are you guys benefiting from this? Uh, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned on the show that Rockhurst actually won an award one year from my former employer, Computer World, for their fantastic on-site IT infra- infrastructure and support. So, uh, oh, they, cool. I, yeah, I would not be surprised if they are keeping up with that tradition and getting access to the latest that Kansas City has to offer, including Google Fiber. So I'll find out. And the other vintage computer-related conference that's taking place this summer will be held on August 4th and 5th in the University Center at the University of Texas Arlington. And that's uh, VCF Southwest, I believe. This is the second or third year that they've been having it. Admission is $10 for one day, $15 for both day, and it's free for ages 17 and younger. Uh, we'll have a link to the show notes. Um, I don't, I, I've never been to this. Have either of you made it down south to this thing? No, I haven't. No, neither have I. I'm not a huge VCF fan. I've been to two of the East events, and they were enjoyable and certainly worth the drive, whether it was one hour or four hours, but I don't think VCF, uh, appeals to a very, very Apple II-centric individual such as myself, and I wouldn't fly to Texas or elsewhere for it. I'm, I'm sure you, I'm sure you would enjoy the uh, Southeast with the, uh, um, museum that Lonnie Mims put together. Yeah, we've mentioned on the show that the museum was a far more professional presentation than I don't, I think any of us expected. That was very cool to see. And, and you're absolutely right. I would have enjoyed it. But again, as you said earlier, Mike, you have limited opportunities to travel throughout the year. And so you really have to choose your trips wisely and budget for them. So this year, uh, actually I, I made a list earlier and I'm going to eight different conventions this year. Most of them are in the Boston area, but you know, to throw on one more that's 2000 miles away, just put me a little bit over my budget. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Well, then uh, VCF has historically been really associated with the classic computing mailing list. Um, Salam Ismail, I think is how you pronounce it. He started this. and He, <laughs> he started it. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he started the VCFs um, back in 97, the first one out in, in California. And I know that he, for a long time, was a heavy contributor to that list, and that's where uh, the momentum to get these those particular uh, festivals going started. And... Um, the class computing list has a very heavy mainframe uh, mini computer, especially um, deck uh, PDP influence. So when you in the past when you went to these, that's what you got. You didn't get a whole a whole lot of the home computer. Well, uh, I, I kind of disagree with that, Mike. Oh, really? I, th- I think there's a a wide range of computers there. Okay. Um, it's not uh, certainly at this. Uh, um, VCF East, there's a few guys that drag their PDPs in there, but, you know, there's almost always Commodores and uh, Atari systems, and, you know, last year somebody had an IBM PC uh, type setup, and we always, you know, have a few Apple nuts there, so I think it's pretty diverse, but, but to tell you the truth, I think and this is the thing when I, I did mention I go to, went to the Burlington one and I just kind of dropped in and snooped around the exhibit area. But the real interesting thing about these, uh, VCFs are the talks, which is, you know, and they get a, 
you know, some of them are better than others, but, you know, there's some very interesting people that kind of tell, you know, what it was like. So I, I think it, I don't see it as a mini computer thing. I see it as a kind of a mix of things. Now, the VCFs I've been to, I, I didn't even notice that they had talks. It seemed almost exclusively to be an exhibit hall event. Yeah, well, I, I think that's not, yeah, the, the talks, the, the ones on the east especially are, you know, in the uh, Info Age Center. They're, the talks are in different rooms, but uh, like uh, last year they had Dan Cockey there, um, and he gave a wonderful talk on uh, what was going on at Apple in the early days. I think a, a lot, especially in the early days, the, the VCF, the original one that was in San Francisco, hasn't been held for many years now. But uh, th- those first VCFs, um, like you said, Ken, were, were really heavily just exhibitor halls and, and um, seeing the actual computers. I don't remember there being talk of sessions at all. The, it's the ones out, especially on the East Coast, that have really kind of expanded it and made it a much better presentation i think adding to that exhibit hall like like mike was saying uh speakers um significant speakers from computer history that uh, really make it interesting oh yeah absolutely yeah i would say that vcf is finally maturing to the state that kansas fest has been at for decades indeed (laughs) (laughs) there you go a little friendly rivalry there Mm. so it's good to give them something to aspire to that's right (laughs) Well, I think that's our convention circuit for this month. Let's move on to the uh, specialty area of our guest of the month. Uh, retro computing projects on Kickstarter are not necessarily unheard of, but they are somewhat uncommon compared to the wealth of other projects for art, comic books, dance, theater, and especially video games. However, we do see a book being published on Kickstarter by Mr. Robert J. Luther, and that book is called The First Apple. And he is referring not only to the Apple One, but he is referring to what he believes is the first Apple One, the Apple One One. He has some information about this computer, and he has written a book of between two and three hundred pages. And he went on Kickstarter to ask for funding to publish it, and wanted thirty-five hundred dollars, and received more than double that at seven thousand eight hundred ninety-one. The funding period was May twenty-second to June twenty-first. And I can see a few of my Apple II buddies, actually three of them who will be at KFest, all back to the project and will be getting copies of the ebook or of the paperback or the hardcover. This gentleman, uh, Mr. Luther, has been on Bloomberg News, uh, Bloomberg TV, with interviews about the Apple One, which, as Michael Legal said earlier, has been very popular a news item lately. However, via Twitter, I determined that Mr. Jason Scott is not very enthusiastic about this project. He feels that there really isn't a story there. It's more of a long-form essay. At over 200 pages, I don't know necessarily what the content of those pages might be. I don't know if there's really a story there or if it's more uh, anecdotal or schematics or the like. However, it is interesting. Uh, what do you think about this, Mike Willegal? Well, actually, I talked to... Uh Bob had an assistant interview me, must have been a couple years ago, and a couple of uh, the other guys working on reproduction. So I'm very curious to see what he's got in terms of uh, if he's got a story. I mean, you know, and and it's probably worthwhile to see. The the thing about the Apple One is that story's been told over and over and over again by Waz and numerous other people, and it's going to be hard to... I think it'd be hard to come up with something really new. 
I don't know. What do you guys think? The the story of, of this particular Apple One might be a little bit interesting. I don't know that it merits a book. I think, like you said, uh, can an essay maybe uh, more in line with with what it with what he should be putting out here. He said uh, he says here in, in the Kickstarter article that the uh, um, after I purchased the 1976 Apple One computer at a, at a self storage auction. I looked into its history. The most logical source of the info was the previous owner, but that was complicated. He'd sold his tech company for $100 million during the tech boom, stopped making payments on his private jet, fled the country to Venezuela, and abandoned his young... Uh, I don't need all that. Um, he was, so Bob was trying to, to find this guy, and he died at age 50. Um, so it looks like, yeah, like I said, I, I think that maybe the, the specific... Um, Provenance of this Apple One is interesting, but uh, a whole book about the thing—I I don't know. I thought it was more more than one Apple One he was talking about. But was it? I don't know. It's kind of a mystery what he's coming up with. Well, we won't have long to wait because, according to Kickstarter, the ebook will be out July 2013. That's this month. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. Well, I th- I'm encouraged that he. You know, regardless of the quality or the content of the book, this guy set a reasonable goal on Kickstarter, and he had a decent video to promote it. Uh, you may recall that What's Where in the Apple also had a Kickstarter, and in my opinion, I think I think the fifteen thousand dollars that he was asking, if that number is correct, was a little bit ambitious, and the video was, to be honest, somewhat amateurish. So I think this project showed how a Kickstarter on the original Apple computers can be done, and he proved that it is feasible. So I hope that, if nothing else, this encourages other retro computing enthusiasts to view Kickstarter as a viable medium in which to make their projects a reality. Definitely. Cool. It looks like there's a, a photo here at the top of the uh, Kickstarter page that is a, it's sort of a close-up of an Apple One board. It looks like it's missing a bunch of chips. And I don't know if that's his or... Hmm. Um, so... I'm, I would assume that's a still from the video, but I don't want to sit down and watch the entire right. uh, seven minutes right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, okay. this is something that I will probably buy um, just because this sort of thing interests me. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about it on an upcoming episode. Is there a yeah. reason you didn't back it? Um, Since you're no. going to buy it in the end anyway. <laughs> no. Um, uh, no, there isn't. Okay. uh, There's one interesting fact there. Uh, I had that Apple One registry, and there was one computer. uh, It was called uh, Ricketts Apple One, and uh, he's the one that ended up with it. And because he's publishing this book, I figured out where it is. So it's kind of... Wait, you you figured out where what is now? On my Apple One registry, I try to, you know, log where all these Apple Ones are now, right? And I had one listed. Because I'd found some reference to it on the internet, and then I saw his thing, and I says, "Oh, that's where it is." He you made the connection. It. Got it. Oh yeah. Cool. So this Charles Ricketts was the the original owner of this, and that's what you had documented. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that he was able to provide you that missing link. <laughs> and there are five other Apple ones that recently surfaced. Not not they were necessarily lost, but five Apple ones showed up. In one place, which in the last 30 years of Apple II history is, or Apple history is probably unprecedented. I can probably tell you a little bit about it because I, I, the guy at the museum, um, Ralph Simpson, 
And this is at the uh, San Jose Museum, History, History San Jose? History San Jose. He was a volunteer there. And he, they had this Apple One, and he wanted to get it running. And, you know, the directors of the museum didn't want to touch the thing because it was a precious artifact. Sure. But he finally convinced them, okay, uh, it's okay to get it running. And mm-hmm. he contacted me saying, do you got any hints about bringing up this Apple One? And uh, first thing I did is, since he was out in San Jose, I put him in touch with um, Wendell Sander. And Wendell said, oh, I bet Dan Cocky would be interested, too. So by the time this whole thing came about, it, it, it's interesting because the uh, original Apple employees like Wendell and uh, Dan Cocky, um, you know, the Huston, Huston brothers, um, you know, Waz, um, bomb. These guys are still communicating. They're very tight knit group. Um, and you know, once kind of Wendell got involved, he invited all his friends, and all of a sudden they ended up with five of them there. It was it was kind of uh, surprising. It's so three of those five were actually in working condition. Yeah. Well, they had a meeting. Um, a couple of weeks before they invited the press where like Wendell brought his up and they put together a plan to bring up the one in the museum. And, uh, I forgot which other one worked. And that, the other interesting thing there is, um, a number of us have been asking was over the years, every you know year or so, you know, where's your Apple one? And he says, I don't know. He doesn't know. <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> well, that's what he always answered. Right. What's going on with your Apple One? Well, it's funny when they, de- you know, when he decided to bring his Apple One along. So I guess he did know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm but, glad he didn't, you know, just like but, forget it in the closet or something. Yeah, but that wasn't a, a prototype. That was a, a late production model that he he owns, and actually, uh, I think Wendell's working on getting that one working too. Hmm. All the Apple Ones were originally hand-assembled by Waz, right? Or were they mass-produced? Um, it's kind of a c- combination of things. They um, they used a, a PCB vendor to uh, make the boards. They stuffed the boards. They wave-soldered them, which is, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that technology, mm-hmm. but it, it's basically they, they plug all the chips in the board and all the parts in the board, and they run it over a solder bath, and it basically solders the board in like one pass and um then um so then they shipped or shipped them at least the early ones over to uh the job's house and uh job's sister stuffed the chips in the board and uh dan cocky actually uh is the guy that brought them up and got them working but nobody hand soldered them but it is fair to say that every apple one was held by waz at some point uh, probably not. Oh. Because uh, Dan Cocky did the bring up. Uh, Waz's sister p- put the chips on the board. And it, like I said, uh, Dan did this speech at VCF each East uh, a year ago, and he talked about how Waz would show up at Job's house about once every two weeks or so to see what was going on. Hmm. So he wasn't, like, engaged in bringing up boards. Oh. It, well, according to... Uh, Dan. I mean, I guess this this probably isn't news to anybody else, but I I just I don't know. I always envisioned 
Jobs and Waz really, really launching their company and their careers in that garage, just, you know, slaving the night away and putting together all these apples to fulfill all these orders. Yeah, I think it was Dan Cocky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. not, not to say that they didn't, I mean, I, it's taken me two weeks once to get an Apple One clone working, so mm. it's non-trivial amount of effort, but, um, they weren't there with soldering iron, soldering, uh, sockets on boards. Well, Dan Cocky is my new personal hero. <laughs> I want to see him on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> All three of the working Apple Ones, it looks like, were put to use um, at this little gathering. Uh, volunteers inserted a program tape to the cassette drive and primitive digital images of the Apple icon uh, and of Waz and Jobs and of the Apple II appeared. Um, meantime, Sanders' computer ran a Star Trek game and Alan Baum's featured the game of life. I wonder, it doesn't say who the third working computer belonged to. Do you know the answer to that, Mike? There was uh, one guy that was a computer shop owner. It might have been that one. Andy Wong. Does that sound right? Yeah. So then then Waz's Apple one would actually be one that wasn't working? It's not working. I think Wendell's working on getting it working for okay. Waz. It's, miss, it's missing some parts right now. Oh. And when you say the game of life, I assume that's Conway's game of life. Uh, it doesn't say, but I would assume that I would assume that's the one, yeah. As opposed it's, to like the Milton Bradley board right. game. <laughs> <laughs> what is Conway's game of life? It is a artificial life simulator of that. How- that's the one where the little blobs show up on the screen. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it would be that one. There is a uh, life game for the Apple One out there. Yeah, and Peter Neubauer wrote it for the Apple II and won Hackfest with it a couple of years ago. That's actually the was my first introduction to the game. I've since found an iOS game called Conway where you actually have to destroy civilizations using the rules of Conway's Game of Life. No, oh, it's fun. You get to see them <laughs> set on fire and poison their lakes and watch them die. Little people running around in pain. Yeah, I sent it to Peter Neubauer and said, hey, now that you've created life, maybe you could destroy it on the <laughs> Apple II as well. But no dice. Maybe this year's Hackfest. You're a cruel man, Ken Gagney. I take delight in other people's suffering. It's true. Yes, I... Schadenfreude. Yep. I've experienced okay. this firsthand. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> anyway, so we have yet another Apple One on the auction block, if we're ready to move on to that topic. Yeah, I think so. And we've been talking about how this is still news. Every time it happens, it's news. And I think it's going to continue to be news because of several reasons. One is these can... You know, whenever anything sells for a ridiculous price, people are still getting their minds around how much the Apple One is worth. And they, the prices are, even when they skyrocket, they often skyrocket past what the previous Apple One sold for, which is ridiculous. There are still a very limited number of Apple Ones in the world, and you know, that's not changing. In fact, it may even be getting smaller if we're finding out that even Waz doesn't have a working one. And Steve Jobs is still dead. So this is all stuff that contributes to Apple being newsworthy. And this Apple One looks like it is going up on the auction block at Christie's next week, according to this article. So that would probably be the last week of June. And they are expecting it to go for at least half a million dollars. Ouch. Which is less than the last one went for. I think that was closer to like 671 or something. Mm -hmm. So this is quite the bargain, comparatively. But it does say... That, uh, it says an expert hired by Christie's recently came to, uh, let's see, Ted Perry, a 70 year old retired school psychologist 
who owns the old apple, went to Perry's home to examine the apple and turn it on. The motherboard's original, obviously the keyboard modern storage device, uh, which is a portable cassette tape deck, were added later. And the expert says, I was a little afraid to run it, but it still works, and with the original chips. And that's pretty rare as far as I know. I remember the one that sold back in November 2010 had some replacement parts on it, which seems to be pretty common. This one actually says it has the original chips. Mike Will Eagle, do you think that will influence the price and cause it to sell for even more? I'm I'm still trying to get my head around the, these prices these things are getting, and uh, I mean it's not much different from the price you charge for your clones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured I could build 500 clones for the cost of one of those. <laughs> Just a couple of extra zeros at the end there. Close enough. No, I I don't. You know, people ask me all the time about you know what's the uh, you, you know. People say, "Do you think the price is going up and or down in the future?" And I said, "If I knew that, I'd be dealing in Apple once." I I don't know. I I think the 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 interesting thing is though a lot of those high dollar sales have been overseas. Either you know, I think there was one guy in Italy, and the last two that went over half a million went to Asia. So there's probably some demand in foreign markets, or maybe they're just richer than us. Yeah, well, they've got all our money, right? Isn't that <laughs> no? They have all our money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was, another... I was wondering. I was wondering if this, this is just like a circle of rich guys. There are five or six rich guys that are just selling their Apple Ones back and forth to each other, or something. I mean, well, no. What, what's really happening is there's into guys like this guy that just surfaced, you know. Mm-hmm. That that had one from the uh, late seventies, early eighties, or whatever. They're they're looking at the value of these things and saying, "I better cash in." Yeah, it says um, he, he acquired his Apple One in either nineteen seventy nine or eighty as a secondhand item that he saw advertised, and he paid nothing for it. It's he was it was a swap with another with another owner. So the I think the interesting thing about Apple Ones is that they've been collectible since the eighties, at least, if not before then. Yeah, I, I saw, a, and I can't remember where, I can't remember the source on this, but I was reading an article, maybe it was in Byte or something. It was Waz back in like 83 or 84 saying that he had heard of Apple Ones being sold for as much as $10,000 back then. So Right. So the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, if Apple as a company, you know, loses their mojo or whatever, I would expect the value of these things to go down. I think a lot of it's riding on the... You know the value of the company, but for instance, that Selby we mentioned earlier, there are probably only ten or fifteen of those in existence, and the same auction um, where the one the Apple One went for six hundred thousand, the Selby went for fifteen thousand. Even though, in my mind, it's just as historically significant, except for the company. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a difference in price. Um, so this latest auction that Christie's is holding is is uh, it's going to be part of First Byte's iconic technology from the 20th century, and it will be conducted online only from June 24th through July 9th. This particular Apple One will be displayed uh, starting um, that Monday at the Computer History Museum uh, in Mountain View. So folks will have two weeks to watch the price on this escalate? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I wonder what benefits an official auction house brings over eBay other than an expert being there to 
authenticate and verify the product. Because I assume they take a cut, of course, of the final sales. That's how they make their money, same as Kickstarter. So why would somebody with Apple One not just go on eBay and say, hey, I'm going to keep all the money and sell it myself? Oh, I think that I think it, it makes a huge difference. The there are high end art uh, art collectors and people like this who are going to be spending this money who wouldn't deal with eBay because you know the the auction houses are established and it's sort of a you know kind of a hoity toity I I spend my money here because I can thing. And it's yeah, also and I, more of a caveat emptor situation. Exactly. On it eBay. Right. Yep. And I, I'm sure these guys have connections. They know the collectors that are, there's probably collectors around, you know, can you get me one? And, you know, they're saying, hey, we got one for auction. So there's there's some of that probably going on too where uh, if you just put it on eBay, unless you knew, send emails to the guy saying, hey, I got this one on eBay and you know the guy looking for one, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. But you're right. There, there is a big, big cut that the auction house takes. I, I'm I'm told by after taxes and after the cut of the auction house, you you might bring home 35 percent of the final uh, price that they advertise. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to figure the government's going to get. You know, when you're talking about those numbers, you're in the highest tax bracket. So. And the uh, and the higher the higher the sale price, the larger percentage I think the auction house takes from it. Well, they take money from the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. Ha, wow. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. quite a racket. Yeah, I'll yeah. say. All the more reason to do it on your own if you can, but oh well, whatever. So, there, I mean, there's a number of private sales that go on. You know, we're behind the scenes. Oh, we've been talking a lot about Apple Ones here, but uh, one of the recent trends on uh, that we've seen a lot on eBay has been the the price of original Apple Twos getting uh, getting higher and higher and higher. On, on June tenth, uh, an Apple Two, an original Apple Two, sold uh, for twenty three thousand ninety nine dollars after forty one bids. Now, this granted, this is a very early Apple Two. It's one of the ones that. Did not have the ventilation holes cut in the side. Uh, the serial number tag on the bottom says that it's uh, number 47. It does have the white ceramic 6502. Uh, Mike, have you seen this auction? Yeah, that was... I mean, when's the last time you've seen a ventless Apple II go up for sale? Yeah, it's. Uh, this is definitely a rare item, so I guess the... I mean, the price hmm, is obviously way out of what I could could afford, but it's it's nice to see. Now it looks like it does have one of the later keyboards without the the raised power light. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. This is so. There's act. There were actually two machines that sold uh, as uh, in this au- auction. One of them was this original Apple II, and one was a, a later one. And it's kind of neat because the 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 seller has actually posted a, a series of really high-resolution pictures, and, and you can get a good look at some of the, the detail on this machine. And I was uh, talking with another Apple II collector and enthusiast, Paul Hagstrom, and we were discussing sort of the the wild case irregularities. You can see the rough edges and how things sort of didn't fit together. And um, I think this this machine actually dates back to when Apple is still using the the wooden the wooden case molds that they had all those problems with. Yeah, Dan Cocky talks about how he had to file the cases to make the uh, keyboards fit. Wow. So, yeah, that's definitely an early one. And I read somewhere that these early Apple IIs were, were so so different from each other, in fact, that a lid from one Apple II usually wouldn't fit on another one. 
because of the the, the variances in, in the case differences. Hmm. I hadn't heard that story. Okay, I could be wrong. No, you could be right. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. I'm wrong more than you can believe. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, if I'm looking at this, um, you know, and, and the pictures look great and all that, but if I'm going to drop twenty five grand on an um, auction on eBay, like Ken said, it's sort of a caveat. MTOR situation, how can I be sure that this is actually a Rev Zero Apple II and that what I'm looking at is is not something that's, you know, got chips swapped out and things like that? I don't know. I'd, I'd, before I drop that kind of money, I'd want to see it in person and meet who's selling it. Okay. And I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that could be arranged. You know, you, you send a message to the guy, I, wa- I want to see it, I want to talk to you, you know? Sure. I want to break your legs and run away with your computer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Meet me in the alley. <laughs> but are are there certain things that that I could look at? So I, these pictures are are really high quality, and you can get a lot of detail here. Are there, are there certain things that I can look at and immediately see that no, this is not a, an original Apple II? I mean that that picture hat looked looked like an original. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it, I can't remember. I'm not looking at it right now, but I, I can't remember if the uh, ROMs had been replaced or they still had the integer ROMs in it. But otherwise, I think it looked pretty original. Okay. Well, what I'm getting at, I guess, is that that I, you have a guide uh, on your on your page, right, that talks about some of these identifying features and what makes it a Rev Zero as opposed to a Rev Seven or something like that. Yeah, the 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 easiest thing actually for a uh, Rev Zero board to identify, and almost all uh, internet sites have uh, pictures of that, is on next to the uh, color trim uh, um, capacitor. There's a color killer transistor on Rev ones and up, and this is so. This is definitely a Rev Zero board. Okay. Because it doesn't have that uh, color killer transistor. Yeah, and I look at it. The one thing about it, it does have AppleSoft ROMs in it. But but other than that? Other than that, it looks pretty original to me. Hmm. Well, save your pennies, folks. These things are getting expensive. Indeed. Alrighty, I love me some Apple II games, so let's talk about one, that being the Prince of Persia. Now, we all know that... Uh, Tony Diaz was recruited by Jason Scott to save Jordan Mechner's source code to Prince of Persia last year. All parties involved did an excellent job, and that source code has now been published online. The copyright remains with Jordan Mechner, but the code itself is available. In the last year, or actually just in the past few months, Mr. Adam Green went through and commented all the code, making it even easier to understand and to hack. And now another contributor, I believe his name is Mr. Fabian Sanglard has gone through and is now not only building on those comments, but actually dissecting the code and explaining what each section does. And he's doing it so exhaustively that Mr. Mechner himself left a comment on the blog saying, Fabian, you're doing an amazing job of reconstructing and explaining the source code better than I could myself. You're reminding me of things I'd completely forgotten after 25 years. Please don't stop now. I'm curious to see how it turns out. So this is, this is a pretty cool uh, disassembly of the code brought to our attention by Open Apple listener Olivier Gunnar, and it is uh, a, l- a little bit above and beyond my ken. So I, uh, not being a coder, I'm not necessarily sure I understand it all, but 
I do recognize some of the terminology as that which is bandied about commonly in the Apple II community, and I'm sure that anybody who understands this stuff will be delighted to see how Prince of Persia was actually written. Yeah, so I recommend taking a look at it. If you're just any sort of a hobbyist enthusiast when it comes to coding, then you'll enjoy this. And even if you're not much of a coder, if you're just a gamer like me, then you'll nonetheless appreciate knowing that this is out there and that people are working with this code, you know, 30 years after it was originally written. Yeah, I, I think the whole idea of first of the the fact that it was found and that they were able to rec- to rescue the source code and then and then the fact that that Jordan decided to share it with everybody and is not only has he put it out there but he's paying attention to to people who are actively interested in it is really neat because the, so many times you deal with these companies like say Electronic Arts who had a huge has a huge Apple II back catalog of software, they don't even, if you call them and, and talk to anybody there, they I doubt they would even know what you were talking about. Um, I, I know that there was a time when I was trying to get EA and some of these other companies to maybe allow us to to, re- to release their titles as freeware for the Apple II that, you know, that I was either told no or you know, what we don't know what you're talking about. So uh, it's kind of refreshing to see Jordan's involvement in this. Well, especially when when you're going right to the source like like that, I'm not surprised that a uh, you know the worst company in America, Electronic <laughs> Arts, doesn't remember stuff that they made 30 years ago. But if you were to go to the guy who wrote the original Madden, well, yeah, he remembers writing that because he's suing Electronic Arts for his royalties. So at the individual level, those memories are there. At the institutional level, they just get absorbed and forgotten. Yeah, but there are developers out there who either probably don't remember as much or don't care about those titles anymore. So, uh, Possibly. I do recall mentioning on this show a year or two ago, Mr. Justin Legacus, who wrote the Apple II GS game Death Maze. And when I emailed him about it, he's like, wow, I haven't thought of that game in decades. No, I don't have the source code. I, I don't remember it not working on the ROM 3, but I do remember writing it. And, you know, if I, I thought it was a pretty cool game. And if I had written a game that cool, I'd remember everything about it. Yep, me but, too. <laughs> you'd remember a game that I wrote? I would. Do you remember Spaceship of Death? I wrote that game. I have a personalized copy. Personalized? <laughs> Signed Did by I? the author. <laughs> wow. I, wow. I, I don't remember that. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, we are moving on the spreadsheet, and I see something I don't recognize. The Amazing Apple Clothing Collection <laughs> from 1986. Now, given that my wardrobe hasn't been updated in that time, maybe I should know what this is about. But why don't you tell us more about it, co-host Mike? Why, thank you, co-host Ken. I can certainly do that. So Apple uh, has uh, is obviously known for putting out all kinds of stuff that you can buy, accessories and, and things like that, to go along with your fancy new Apple computer, whether it's a, a cross pen or, well, whatever you can think of. Uh, ooh, ooh, I want an Apple iWatch. <laughs> well, you might have to wait a little <laughs> while for that. Hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go and, and purchase, or at in 1986, you could have purchased clothing from the Apple Collection. Um, good.is, I guess good is, has a, a close look at a catalog of very, very 80s looking, uh, clothing that you could buy and show that you were an Apple geek. And some of these pieces of apparel don't even look very Apple branded. I'm looking at one of a young metrosexual couple <laughs> and he's, he's wearing a blue sweater. She's wearing a maroon sweater. They got their hands in their pockets and they don't look very happy about it. And I don't see any Apple branding 
Maybe it's when they take off the sweaters and the shirts underneath are branded, but in that particular photo, I, I, and actually as I scroll down, I continue to see things and I'm like, well, what's, what's the gimmick here? What's, what's the connection? Yeah, I think the sweaters, yeah, you may be right. You take the sweater off, tie it around your neck, and then whatever you have. Oh, God, tie it around your neck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you're one of those, uh, prissy seniors in high school or something. Exactly. So I'm on the yearbook committee and you're not. (laughs) (laughs) If that's the message you want to send to your friends, you can dress like it's 1986. Yep. And, uh, somehow I, I, I doubt you can buy any of this stuff at your local Sears anymore. And, and I, Perhaps, perhaps someone at Apple wishes that uh, this had never been unearthed. But there it is in all of its uh, popped color IZOD '80s glory. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like Good Dot is is just reposting these photos from thewallbreakers.com. Ah, okay. That's the link we'll have in the show notes. Uh, do either did either of you have any Apple apparel at any point in your uh, career? I don't think I do to this day. <laughs> your sartorial tastes have never swung that way. Uh, I used to have an Egghead software t-shirt. That's, I think, as close as I got. Yeah, the closest I come is, you know, a couple dozen Kansas Fest shirts. Oh, I yeah. have, and I have Syndicom and Intrek from the creators of ProTerm. Um, I think that's it, though. I don't remember having any original Apple gear. I still have Apple logo, uh, stickers. In fact, some have been sent to me by JuiceGS readers. But, no, that's it. I don't think I have any clothing. Have you any, seen the- <laughs> You don't have any Apple clothing. <laughs> any clothing well, at all. You know what I mean. Th- that's why this is an audio podcast. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, I'm glad we shut down that video. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Skype. You have blinded more of us than I care to say. <laughs> uh, sort of related here. Have you guys seen that, that Apple T-shirts book? It rings a bell. We may have talked about it on the show. Yeah. Apple T-shirts, a yearbook of history at Apple Computer. That's 204-page hardcover coffee table book with some really outstanding pictures of the various T-shirts that Apple has put out over the years. Um, this sort of reminded me of that. So it look, looks like that book is... think that's a profitable uh, enterprise? Producing books on Apple T-shirts. <laughs> I like that. That's a niche market of a niche market. <laughs> yes, but if you only put out a few of them and say that say that they're collectible, you can sell them for five hundred dollars a copy. Maybe. Wow. I think that's what that Apple Design book is going for these days. I think I have that book. In yeah. fact, I I hate that book because it's so tall; it doesn't fit on any of my shelves. <laughs> right. Yep. Pain in the butt. Yep. Anyway. Alrighty, let's move on to. Oh, we have another ebook coming out. This one is not about the first, first Apple One or whatever you want to call it. This is actually a re release of a formerly paperback book. This is the ebook edition of the new Apple II User's Guide, written by former Open Apple guest Mr. David Finnegan. He has sold either at Kansas Fest through Amazon.com or through his own online store. Over 400 copies of wow. the new Apple II User's Guide. Is that... Uh, I hear you sounding impressed, Mr. Mike? Uh, yeah, that... Um, I didn't know that there would be demand for 400 copies of this. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm impressed, too. That's a lot. Yeah, I think that's really neat. This sounds on, on in line with what Richard Dreyer has sold for the CFFA. He usually sells between four and 600 of those, if I recall correctly. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. Those numbers just blow me away. Uh, the number of CFFAs Rich has sold. I mean, it's an amazing product, but just to think that that market 
is that big is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, it's not like it's a Mimeo or Replica 1 where it's a self-contained unit. The CFFA requires that you have a working Apple II. So that's an even smaller market. Uh, the book Mr. Finnegan wrote, of course, doesn't require any hardware or software to read, and he has decided to change that. <laughs> now he has an ebook edition. You can read it on your Kindle, your iPad, your iBook, your Nook. Uh, he, there are, of course, multiple ebook formats out there. There's the iBook, there's EPUB, there's AZW for the Kindle, there's Moby. And he has decided that the most liberal solution, his words, are to go with a PDF version. The PDF is unlocked and unencumbered by any DRM, plus it has hyperlinks to each of the chapters and appendices for your convenience. And so he is selling this book directly from his store, and he says that he'll accept any price over a dollar. Name your own price, one dollar minimum, and you'll get your own copy. I'd buy that for a dollar! So, actually, I take it back when I say you can buy through his online store. If I'm reading this announcement on callapple.org correctly. It looks like you actually just email the author directly and he will coordinate the sale with you. So he'll probably directly just email you the PDF as opposed opposed to buying it through an online store like a... So he's not selling it through an online store. He's selling it via email. Um, But yeah, so that's a pretty good price. Do you guys think he's selling it for a dollar because... PDFs are much easier to produce than ebooks. Do you think it's because he's saturated the market and maybe he's trying to sell the ebook version to people who have already given him their money for the paperback edition? What do you think is his philosophy behind this? I don't have a good idea at all. No clue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see this maybe as a way to combat the piracy. If you're going to put a PDF out there, especially one that doesn't that isn't locked or, or have loaded with DRM, it, it's going to get passed around. And if you if you put it out there and say, I'll, you know, pay me a dollar for it, you're, you're going to get a lot more, I think, customers and, and people who will actually pay you than if you say, this is 20 bucks and, and it's DRM locked and all that. So you think he just doesn't even want to fight that battle? It's I almost like a shareware model, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, kind of. And, and if that were me, that that's that's what that would be part at least part of my motivation for it. Now I know he was working on a second edition of the the new Apple II users guide. I don't know if this includes those changes and edits or not. It doesn't. He he makes no mention of that. So there may be something a little bit further down the line that'll that'll have um, more information that that may I don't know cost a little more or something. I'm pretty sure that the ebook version is the latest version. You're right. I do remember reading that he was working on a second edition, and I haven't heard if that's come out, but I presume that, like Jason Scott, he'll offer some sort of an upgrade guarantee where if you buy one version, you'll get later versions for free. I do the same thing with JuiceGS PDFs, although I don't know that I've ever advertised it, where if you buy one of our concentrates, and later on we add new material or we go back and correct existing material to the PDF, I send the updated version to anybody who's ever bought it. Because it's it's just like software. You you know, minor updates are free. Cool. Yeah, so I would hope that uh Mr. Finnegan is working under a similar philosophy. I mean it doesn't it's very little effort and very little expense to do so. Well, if you prefer if you still prefer your uh, uh reading material in in the Dead Tree edition the print version is uh, still available for the low, low price of only $22. 
Well, and uh, yeah, congratulations to David for the for the success on this. That, that's really cool to see that, that so many people are interested in um, in buying the book. Yeah, he's contributed a lot to this community, whether it's through his extensive online repository, his online web hosting, his book, his ebook. It's very cool to have him in the community, and I hope that he'll come to KFest and own up to everything he's done. It's awesome. <laughs> admit it. Admit it. <laughs> uh, Mr. Willegal, do you have a copy of his book? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should. I, well, that, night, night I'll, I'll tell you what. With with me, I get started on projects, and I I try to commit to myself to finishing a project before starting the the next one, or otherwise. Uh, this house would be falling down from the weight of stuff I'd be bringing in. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Sorry, I, uh, I I was on Google pulling up our spreadsheet, and I found a little plus one, and I'm being followed by this old-time Apple II user who's actually written for Juice just years ago, <laughs> and there's a picture of him with Will Wheaton and Felicia Day. Oh, wow, crazy. <laughs> and, he's wearing a, and he's wearing an Infocom shirt. That's uh, cool. He, he being the Apple II user. So, uh, hmm. I, I'm all sorts of titillated right now. Anyway, uh, all right, moving on. We got a couple of movies or videos to talk about. One is Steve Jobs, an interview with him. Uh, this is a brief clip. I think it may be part of a longer, more extensive video, but the part that's being bandied about is a 1994 interview with Steve Jobs while he was still at Next. Is that correct? In 94? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he is saying that by the time he's 50 years old, he expects everything he's done for Apple to be obsolete. And, you know, by the time by the time he was 50, that was the year 2005. And in 1994, he's saying, look, the Apple I is already obsolete, the Apple II is obsolete, the Mac is on the verge of obsolescence. And, you know, he was certainly true or correct about many of those observations at the time about the Apple I and the Apple II in 94 being obsolete, even though people were still using them, of course, and still are. The Mac being obsolete, well, the Mac of 1994, yes, is definitely obsolete in as of 2005, but the Mac itself as a platform is still going strong. I mean, Apple had an extensive presentation at WWDC in June where they talked about the Mac itself for about an hour and a half, which was a nice change from their usual focus on iOS. So the Mac is definitely around. But uh, in general, what do you guys think about Mr. Jobs's comments back in '94? Yeah, I, have, I haven't actually seen the uh, interview, but you know, you say the Mac is going strong, but PCs in general, the sales are, are flat to off. So, <laughs> you know, maybe technology-wise, you know, they're they're they've reached a zenith or whatever and are headed on a downward trend with you know smartphones and everything else filling in so you know maybe he's right (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i don't know i mean i think definitely more and more people are going mobile but i think there's still a there's definitely a a place in our world for desktop computing and even laptops as well yeah i I mean i I think right now for content creation you know, the desktop, the laptop, whatever, are still the preferred thing. Although some people I've heard have gone to tablets or, and whatever for co- even content creation. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I can name a lot of people that don't need a full desktop, right? Because they're not creating any content, they're consuming it. 
you know, the last desktop computer I owned was the Apple II GS. I've right. been strictly laptop since then. Or even laptop, Ken. <laughs> oh, fine. Jeez, you're just going to keep changing the rules to exclude me. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is, you know, there, there's a ton of people out there that are consuming content off the Internet, right, or or websites or whatever, or doing their shopping off the Internet. Well, you know, tablets and smartphones are perfectly adequate for that. They're not producing yeah. anything. They're not giving back to the community at all. They are leeches on our society. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we must exterminate them. Well, I wouldn't go that far. We're talking about my parents. <laughs> they, they each have an iPad 1, and they're very happy with it because, you know, they surf the web and watch videos and maybe send the occasional email, but they certainly don't send as many emails as they read. So they are definitely consumers, whereas people like us who are designing clones and recording podcasts and writing and editing and publishing magazines, you know, we need something a little bit more substantial. Well, then we won't eliminate those leeches. <laughs> we'll be selective. Well, somebody, somebody's got to consume the stuff we're creating, right? That's right. <laughs> you know, we can't all be consumers. What we need to find a way to do is to better monetize the leeches. <laughs> Although I guess my parents would say they've given me enough money already. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, okay. That's enough about Steve Jobs. Let's move on to, oh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher's Jobs movie, finally, finally, was supposed to come out months ago and now has a new date. And that date is August 16th. And the capitalization of the name has changed. The name hasn't changed. <laughs> it's still called Jobs as opposed to Jobs. But now it's capital J, lowercase OBS. Whereas before it was lowercase J, capital OBS. So it's inverted itself. So do you think they um, redid parts of the movie or just redid the marketing <laughs> in this delay? I haven't a clue. What do you think, co-host? I think it's probably uh, marketing, uh, and I think they realized that, that they could probably make more money if they release it during the summer months than if they released it in spring. You think this is going to be a summer blockbuster? I think they think it's going to be a summer blockbuster. Okay, I'm trying to load up. Oh, here we go. We there is an official trailer before all. But by the way, the uh, the Mimeo is featured in that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So they just send you an email. I shouldn't say featured. It's got a cameo role. (laughs) Yeah. So did they just email you and say, "Hey, we want to buy a few of these for the movie"? Yeah, the prop house actually contacted me, uh, and uh, it's a little bit of an interesting story. And I only had eight of them, eight boards and sitting in my shelf at that time. I'm lucky I had eight because some, a lot of times I don't got any. But uh, they said, oh, we need them, we need them in three weeks. And, of course, they were bare boards. They weren't built up. I didn't have all the parts. So I sent them some of the key parts that, you know, the big blue capacitors mm-hmm. and the boards. And they said, well, we'll just find uh, sockets and parts that fit in it and build it up ourselves. So, so they're non-working. I, I, although in the trailer you can see a uh, a display mm-hmm. of uh, characters going out, and that was done by a real Apple One or a clone. So, they have at least one working Apple One over there in that movie. But most of them are uh, are non-working uh, um, props based oh, on Mimeos. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm so I got to see that movie <laughs> to see my see, <laughs> see your stuff. <laughs> Even though I can look in the closet here and see it. 
Well, uh, as we've mentioned, there is a, a high-definition official trailer that's been released, which I think is more than just the clip that had been floating around that uh, that Waz had sort of trashed uh, earlier this year. So you can check that out. We'll have the link in the show notes. Yeah, while you guys have been gabbing away, I just watched the trailer, and it is fantastic. It, I mean, all we'd seen before was the focus... <laughs> Sorry, part of the trailer just made me laugh. They were talking about what to name the company, and Steve Jobs said Apple, and Wall says, that is so much better than phaser beam computers. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think they were ever actually considering that. They're just trying to, again, exploit how Waz was the nerd, and Jobs had the marketing savvy. Right. But nonetheless, it looks like a really fun trailer. It, compass- it encompasses a lot of Apple's and Steve Jobs' lifetimes. And, oh my god, the guy they have playing John Scully... When I first saw it, I thought that was John Scully. I mean, the re- the resemblance is uncanny. I need to pull this up in the Internet Movie Database and see who they got playing him. Matthew Modine? Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what else? He's been in Full Metal Jacket. That's the one I know Dark Knight Rises. He was uh, Foley. I don't know who that is. I didn't see The Dark Knight Rises. Um, uh, the TV series Weeds and The Bedford Diaries. I actually don't recognize him from anything. <laughs> but you saw Full Metal Jacket. I did, and I, I did see him in, in The Dark Knight Rises. I remember him in that. I don't. I watched Weeds, but I don't remember him in that at all. Uh, he was in Memphis Bell, which is a movie back in 1990, which I've seen a couple of times, but not recently. But anyway, yeah, yeah that's a really good casting job right there. Yeah, uh, I think this this trailer they came out with now is a lot more uh, interesting than the one they had before. So that's why I was saying maybe they. Wonder if they redid parts of the movie or they just redid the marketing. And this is a theatrical release as opposed to that college humor thing that came out right to the internet. Yeah, this says coming to theaters August sixteenth, full site launching soon. Yep. Wow. Okay, I am gonna go like them on oh, I already do like them on <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, you know, the the terminology that Facebook uses is so loaded. I mean, you're not liking it. You're subscribing to it because right. you want to get updates. Kind of like friends, you know? I mean, like, I'm not friends with these people. <laughs> and just because I follow them on Twitter doesn't mean I'm friends with them. And that's what I'm doing on Facebook is I'm following them. But anyway, I'm sorry. That's a completely different rant. That's a talk about the social network movie with Mark Zuckerberg as opposed to Jobs. But yeah, who's going to go see this movie? Me. Anybody else? I definitely got to see the uh, Mimeo cameo. <laughs> <laughs> and co-host? Um, I'll probably see it on Netflix. I'm not going to make a trip to the theater to see this. Oh, come on. You'll go see Man of Steel, but you won't see Steve Jobs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but which you hate the Man of Steel. He's just a pastiche of all these superpowers. Well, the character is. The movie, on the other hand, was good. Uh, Mostly. Yeah, it had its occasional moments the first two-thirds of the movie were excellent and then it got it got violent and they just spent 30 minutes knocking down manhattan and smallville fascinating some people think it's just the opposite they're really bored with the first two-thirds and then like oh finally the action sequences are amazing oh no i i felt that i mean we're way off track here but but i felt that uh the first two-thirds were two-thirds of the movie were more of a of of the character of superman than we've ever gotten in any of the movies and most of the comic books Interesting. Did you like all the uh, biblical references? Oh, that was a little over the top. But like on when he's thirty-three, he finds out who his real father <laughs> right, is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
<clears throat> uh, <laughs> slight tangent, but since we were talking about movies anyway. Uh, one last topic this month, and of course, we always save the best for last. Jason Scott, hi. We know you listen to the show. so Our, our Jason Scott segment. We need to have somebody uh, cut a voiceover, and we'll get some music for the Jason Re- Scott segment. Record a bumper just for yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> when you're hearing conversation about Jason Scott, you know it's the Open Apple Podcast. That's correct. He came up to Massachusetts a few months ago to be a guest speaker in my class at Emerson. And I was happy to coordinate that with his scheduling, but he said he would have done it anyway just for an excuse to come up to New England and stop by the home of a user of the Rhode Island Apple Group, or a former member of that user group. This person had a library of floppy disks to get rid of, and Jason was happy to take it off their hands, so he now has 4,000-plus five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disks with documentation and he is currently in the process of imaging and scanning all of them and putting them on the Internet Archive as part of the Rhode Island Apple Group crate. So he is preserving all that and making it available. It's He says he has two gigabytes of TIFF scans of the floppy, so he's actually scanning the floppy labels and sleeves so you can see exactly what the original physical disk looked like. And then he has, of course, all the disk images themselves. And it is uh, quite the exhaustive undertaking. I that, remember his... So- how, how long do you think that's going to take? That seems like a tremendous effort. Yeah, for for somebody like me, it would probably take the better part of a year or more. I'd say Jason will have this done by the end of the month. You're well, kidding. Well, I think that might be different standards and processes because I know that all of us, you know, the two of you, me, Jason Scott, we all love metadata. As Jason said, metadata is a love note to the future. But also, my preferred approach is to have the complete package done and then make it available. Whereas I think what Jason does is he throws everything up on the internet and says we can sort it and organize it later. Our immediate priority is to capture it and make it available. So all this stuff is up there. I don't know that there's really a good sorting or organization scheme or method for these 4,000 disks. That might come later. So he's actually got all 4,000 scanned already? Uh, I don't know about that, but I think what he's posted so far is the first batch, and that in itself is pretty extensive. Yeah, he's calling it the Rhode Island Apple Group crate number one, so I assume that there will be more crates. Yes, I'm sure there will. But, you know, regardless of your approach, and, you know, and I didn't mean that as a criticism, it's just different strategies for accomplishing the same goal, and I'm glad somebody's undertaking that. It's hard to say exactly what will be on these floppies, if it's anything original, or if it's just different collections of software we've been using and seeing for decades. But, again, that's the thing, is you never know what might be in there. You know, this could be the origin of something new, or... You know, something that we're familiar with and we never knew where it came from. So it's pretty cool to get that stuff. As And I'm very glad the original owner didn't just say, oh, I haven't used these in decades. I'm just going to dump them. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that even if it's just reconstituted public domain and shareware, um, I, I still think that, that saving these is valuable because it, it provides a, a little snapshot uh, I guess of of a piece of that not only of Apple history but of the Rhode Island Apple user group's history because a lot of these they'll have it'll be the same software but there'll be an introductory letter from the club president about what's going on uh, in the club or in the Apple world at the time and to me that stuff can be just as fascinating as the software right if not more I mean those old club newsletters 
to some extent, it's the only way to really understand what people were thinking and what was going on back in those days. Exactly. I mean, you can you you can talk to people that lived there, but a lot of times they forgot or they confused dates. You know, you just can't remember. You know what was going on thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, this first group, uh, this first Apple Crate disc image set contains one hundred and forty-five images. So he's he's got quite a quite a few to go. Yes, and is he recruiting anybody to help him, or is he just since there's only one copy of the floppies? I guess he really can't distribute this. Yeah, I, I don't know that there'll be. I don't know if he's going to send that around, but I'm sure he's he will be enlisting people to to help with the metadata. Cool. Yeah, who who's going to sign up for a thousand floppies? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would do a hundred. In fact, I have done a hundred for other friends who have come by with old floppy disks that they were trying to preserve. Mm-hmm. But I I wouldn't. But yeah, a, a thousand would be exhausted for me. He's using the FC five hundred two five, and I have ADT Pro. And both methods are acceptable, but I think he probably has experimented with more processes than I have and knows what the best one is, and I'm just using what I got. Well, the FC5025 works. It's a very very quick process, and it doesn't require the same level of bit bit capture that, say, a protected piece of – a protected game – uh, would need where you would have to go with something like the um, uh, what's that other board that's real popular right now? Cryoflux. Yeah, you don't you don't need the, the Cryoflux for something like this. So uh, that should uh, just about wrap up our Jason Scott news segment for the month. And in fact, I think that can probably wrap up our show. We do have two items on the eBay list, but they're just things I threw on there. And we already talked about the Apple II, the original Apple II that sold on eBay in the news section. The eBay items I was going to mention were Oregon Trail and a Darth Vader Bell and Howl, but there aren't necessarily anything original or unusual about those that we haven't talked about before. So if, uh, seeing as how we've voluminously expanded this show with discussion of the Apple One, I'm willing to cut back and balance it out and try to keep it under, you know, five hours. I'm happy with that. I, I will make a quick note here that the Bell and Howl, um, Darth Vader Apple Two does have that, uh, black, um, multimedia pack thing that that goes on the back and which is typically not included with the auctions so if you if you're looking for that um well it looks like he's asking eight hundred dollars for it three offers have been made and he's turned them all down so maybe that's a little bit more than you want to pay for this since Uh, he's yeah interesting cool but yeah uh other than that i think we could uh wrap it up Excellent. Well, Mike Willegal, you have been to VCF Southeast recently. You're not going to Kansas Fest. Do you have any new projects coming up that you want to share with our audience? Well, yeah. I mean, I've uh, I've got too many things in the works right now. I'm I'm still working on uh, peripherals and, and uh, Selby stuff, and I am also working on a revised uh, Rev Zero reproduction motherboard, which I hope to get out sometime, maybe by fall. Um, and, uh, I got a more work than, uh, time like everybody. <laughs> oh yeah. I hear you. Now, people who are interested in your products and your developments, how can they find out more? Can they like you on Facebook, follow you on Twitter, subscribe to your RSS feed? Um, the best way is to go to net, and the way you spell that is W I L L E G A L. 
Mm-hmm. And there you can find my blog. Um, and you can also send me an email at mike at willigal.net if you're interested in things. Excellent. So you actually yeah, well, you pronounce it Willigal, is that right? I, I don't care how you say okay. it. Because <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think I've been mispronouncing it the entire show. Yeah, I, we've, we've always said Willigal. Well, other people say it that way. I don't. I don't get nervous about that stuff. <laughs> well, that's very generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how you pronounce? I mean, the history of my name goes back to World War One when my uh, all my grandfathers changed their names because mm. they were of German descent. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so anyway, well, uh, you know, call you whatever you want, just don't call you late for dinner. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been fabulous having you on the show. I know that even though you don't live too far from me in Massachusetts, we haven't crossed paths all that often, and I hope that no. you know we don't have to travel all the way to Kansas City to see each other. Absolutely, Ken, and uh, I hope I'm not depressing your ratings too much <laughs> by joining you. <laughs> Trust me, there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Mike, and we look forward to hearing about your future products and seeing you in the Apple II community. Sure. Very happy to join you guys, and uh, this was fun. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Yep. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Speaking of Jesus, Jason Scott has the... <laughs> no, no, bad transition, bad.